0: bask in your love this morning because Father you are a God who's great and mighty and merciful and powerful and we can't even begin to think about your love when we stop to even think about your love it it blows our minds to think that you who are a holy creator an awesome powerful God would stoop so low to love us because we're sinners we've disappointed you time and time again we failed you time and time again. But you continue to love us through Jesus. And you demonstrated that love by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So Jesus, we praise you this morning for the power of your love. Demonstrated on that cross when you bled and died and took our sin and shame. And then you rose again and you're alive today, Jesus, as the one who ultimately brings us to the Father to experience that love. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's never experienced the power of the love of God, that today would be the day they just experience that in an overwhelming fashion. They would see Christ. They would see the beauty of Jesus. They would see the need for a Savior. They would see their sin and see the provision provided by Jesus. And as the song says, Lord, unveil our eyes. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes this morning. We want to see truth. We want to see Christ. We want to see your word. So come do a work that only you can do that we might be changed, we might be transformed, we might be different people than the ones we were when we walked into this room, that we would walk out transformed by the word, by the power of your love, by the power of the gospel, by the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, it's in your wonderful name that we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. This morning, and children, if you're in first grade and on down, you can leave now to go to Kids' Own Worship. Our children, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, and I'm going to need your help this morning as we begin this sermon, and I know you'll be able to help me because I'm sure almost everybody's seen the movie Wizard of Oz, right? What's the little saying that happens when Dorothy and Scarecrow and Tin Man are are walking through the woods and they're about to approach the cowardly lion? What do they repeat? Lions and tigers and bears. Good. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. I don't know if anybody's ever been to the big cat reserve up by Keensburg, up by Hudson. Uh, the, big, the big cats, they're supposedly they're supposed to be lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, up there, right up the road. I'm not sure. I've never been up there. Um, but on December 26th, 2007, Tatiana, a 350-pound Siberian tiger, escaped from her open-air enclosure in the San Francisco Zoo after hours. And she mauled one person to death and seriously injured two other people. This wasn't the first time this large Siberian tiger had actually attacked a human. A year earlier, she attacked a zookeeper on the arm while they were doing a feeding demonstration. I don't know about you guys, but I love to go to the zoo and look at the big cats. Some people are monkey people. Some people are giraffe people. I can just sit there and watch the tiger or the lions. There's something powerful about a big cat. Graceful, powerful. In the African country of Tanzania, lion attacks are on the rise in Tanzania. As a matter of fact, since 1990 to 2005, more than 563 people were killed and at least 308 injured by lions. Which means that in Tanzania, about 40 people a year die from lion attacks. Very interesting. None of us here today would want to be face-to-face in Tanzania and the African bush with a lion, would we? We like the glass enclosure or the bars. None of us would want to be in a lion's den with a salivating lion looking us in the eye, wanting to tear us limb from limb. But that is exactly what happened to Daniel. Okay, we've been going through Daniel for the past five weeks and finally we get to the probably the most famous story in all of the Old Testament, Daniel and the lion's den. And it can almost become a cliche because we've, we've heard it so many times. We, we were fascinated as children we heard the story. But I pray this morning as we look at this, this episode in the life of Daniel that we can truly understand the, the full meaning behind Daniel and the lion's den. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to explore three aspects of the story, three things that emerge from the story, and then finally the fourth thing. As I'm going to give an analogy that I think wraps everything up and it makes it applicable to us today. So three major issues that we see emerge from Daniel six. And here's the first thing that we see: the first big issue. Daniel is a man of utmost integrity. Daniel is a man of utmost integrity. Let's see this unfold, how Daniel is a man of utmost integrity. Daniel 6, let's look at verses 1 through 9. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss." Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. And all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now, by this time, Daniel's in his 80s. He's in the prime of his life. He's been promoted as what we would call a prime minister, a president. He's he's one of these top three guys in the kingdom. And there's these 120 satraps, probably like regional mayors, regional governors. And so Daniel's got this very high position in the government. And as we saw last week, one thing we find out about Daniel in verse verse 2 is that he has, actually in verse 3, is he has an excellent spirit within him. He's become distinguished above all these other people because he has an excellent spirit within him. Now think about Daniel for a moment. How could Daniel have abused his power? Think about this this guy. He's been in the kingdom, a high position of leadership, since a teenager. Now, he could have succumbed to the temptation to lie, to cheat, to steal, to advance his agenda. I mean, he's in the upper echelons of the government. But he doesn't get bought out. He doesn't sell out. He doesn't give in to the corruption. Now, when we think about government and politics, it's probably not much different then than it is today. I mean, we can think of all the politicians that have succumbed to a scandal, who've been greedy, who've been caught up in in prostitution rings, or in dirty money, or in lobbyists, and all these types of things. When you're in the upper echelons of government, the temptation to abuse power is so high. And Daniel, his whole life, has always been in the highest echelons of government. And so all this temptation is staring Daniel in the face, but... Throughout his whole life, from a teenager now into his 80s, he's a man of utmost integrity. Now remember, he's a stranger in a strange land. Babylon, where he was taken captive, now it's the Medes and the Persians. It's a new, a new nation's taken over. This is not his real home. His real home is Jerusalem. He's longing to go back. He, he's an exile. He's a stranger in a strange land. And so if there was ever a chance for Daniel to take it easy, to coast... It was now. After all, he's 80s. He's in his 80s. I've paid my dues. I've been there. I've done that. He's got the t-shirt. He's probably thinking to himself, you know what? I can compromise just a little bit here and there. After all, I've served God faithfully my whole life. God's given me a lot of blessings. Here I am in my 80s. I'm going to coast. I'm going to cruise. I'm going to retire. I'm just going to not really concern myself with with really standing up for truth because after all, I'm almost out of here. What big deal is it going to make? But these 80 years of faithfulness prepared Daniel for the ultimate test. You see, the ultimate test came at the end of his life. We often think those big tests come to us when we're baby Christians. When we're first Christians, we, we may face these big trials, these big temptations, and that's true. But sometimes we can be lulled into a sleep pattern and it's in those graying moments of life. It's at the end of life when we've kind of cruised through life that we can be faced with some of our greatest trials, some of our greatest temptations because we get this attitude, well, I've been there, I've done that, I've paid my dues and now I'm at the end, I'm just going to coast on out of here. But Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel is a man of ultimate integrity. He doesn't retire, he doesn't coast. And so he's this aged statesman A man of utmost integrity. And all of these other governors, these satraps, they get jealous. They they start to bring false accusations against him. They they really can't find any skeletons in Daniel's closet. There's no things they can bring up to smear him in a public ad campaign because Daniel's got impeccable character. There's nothing they can bring up against him. So they're going to have to trump up these charges to try to figure out a way to to trap Daniel. They know that they can't get him in relation to anything related to his job. Anything related to his service. So they say, let's do something related to his God. Let's trip him up in relationship to his God. And here's what happens in verse 6. It says, these presidents, these satraps came by agreement. You may have a little note there at the bottom, like a footnote in your Bible, that say maybe they thronged to the king. In the original language, it really means they came in a wild frenzy. They came like a mob. They were foaming at the mouth. They came in all hot and bothered in this big mob to the king and said, you've got to hear this about Daniel. You, you, you've, got to, you've got to listen to us, king. And so they come in and, and notice what verse 7 says. This is what happens when you have a mob mentality. All the presidents of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps are in agreement with this. Everybody's in agreement with this king. Is that true? No. Did they consult Daniel? Daniel's one of those presidents. He's one of those top three guys. But they came in and they manipulated the situation in a mob frenzy to say, King, look at this. Everybody's in agreement. And the king gets caught up in the emotion. He doesn't stop and say, now, wait a minute. What does Daniel have to say about this? We know Daniel's a godly man. We, we've heard about the stories of Daniel's God. Uh, the, the king doesn't even hear this. He's manipulated into acting foolishly. And then, then he's, they, they, they talk him into making this edict, this law. This law wasn't that big of a deal when you think about it. It was basically for 30 days, you can't pray to anybody. You can't pray to a man or you can't pray to a God for 30 days except for the king. Now we look at that and think, well, wait a minute. This is not as extreme as Nebuchadnezzar asking the three young boys to bow down to the uh, idol or be cast into the fiery furnace. I mean, it's not like Daniel's being asked here to deny God. He's not being asked to deny God. He's not being asked to bow down to an idol. He's just said, you can't pray for 30 days. So at first glance, it seems like this may not be that big of a deal. Think about Daniel for a moment. If he's thinking this through, he probably could have said, you know what, I can just lay low for 30 days. Let the 30 days pass, and after the 30 days, then I'll go back to praying. But that's not Daniel's mode of operation. You see, Daniel doesn't have this attitude of compromise. He could have just said, you know what? I'm at the end of my life. I'm in my 80s. God's not going to mind just this one time. If for 30 days I don't pray. God's, God's okay with me compromising here. I've paid my dues. It's just 30 days. Think about what would happen if you couldn't pray for 30 days. Sinclair Ferguson makes this interesting statement. He says this, we may well ask ourselves in this context if it would make any substantial difference in our lives or the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days? Perhaps in many instances, the answer would be both embarrassing and startling, for prayer has become a neglected discipline and a forgotten art in many Christian churches. So 30 days without prayer. But then comes the persecution. With godliness, with integrity, comes persecution. As a matter of fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Paul writes indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They come and they malign him. They they come against Daniel. Let me just say this, anytime that you stand up for Christ, anytime you make a strong stand, you may need to expect that hostility. You may need to expect that persecution, that misunderstanding. People don't understand what you're doing. Remember, this is a tale of two kingdoms. We've talked about this all the way through Daniel. It's the kingdom of man. It's the kingdom of God. Daniel is a citizen of the kingdom of God, but he's got one foot planted in the kingdom of man. And who's the ruler of the kingdom of man? Who's the prince of the power of the forces of darkness? When you think about lions, when you think about Daniel and the lion's den, you've got to go to some imagery in the New Testament. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 5.8? Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See, the devil is behind a lot of persecution. He's behind a lot of temptation. The devil is going to try to do anything in his power that God allows him to have to try to destroy us as Christians, to try to break us down, to try to get us to, temp- to, to, to compromise, to get us to, 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 to maybe just take some, some chances and not obeying. Sinclair Ferguson again says this about Daniel's life. It serves as a strong reminder to us that temptations to compromise are never isolated incidents in our spiritual life, but are part of a larger strategy of Satan against us. He's a man of integrity. He's a man that's being attacked. He's a man that's being challenged. So what will this old senior adult in his 80s probably do with this 30-day edict not to pray? What's he going to do? Well, the first thing we see about Daniel, he's a man of utmost integrity. The second big thing we see this morning is Daniel is a man of intense prayer. He is a man of prayer. Now let's keep reading and see what happens. Let's look at the prayer life of Daniel. Let's pick up in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They came near and said before the king concerning this injunction, O king! Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. What I find amazing about this, notice what it says there in verse 10. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, what does he do? The first thing he does is he goes and prays. He doesn't go and complain to the king and say, king, you made a major mistake. He doesn't get a mob frenzy of a lot of his friends and go throng the king and say, you've got to stop this. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't, he doesn't try to petition the king. He is a lonely old man he probably has no friends really we don't know where Shadrach and Meshach are they probably died by now Daniel's probably a lonely old man the only friend he's got is the one friend who's going to stick through this with him the living God of Israel and so what does he do he doesn't go into secret he doesn't go into hiding he goes up to his window with the window open and he begins to pray and what I want us to do is look at three specific things about Daniel's intense prayer Some things that I think will help us when we think about prayer. The first thing that we see about Daniel's prayer life is that it's disciplined and focused. It is a disciplined and focused prayer life. I mean, this crisis doesn't drive him to his knees. It's not like he's in a frenzy. I better go start praying. No, this was part of his regular routine. He's going to do what he's always been doing. He's going to go pray. Now, the enemies are thronging to the king in a panic. They're coming and saying, King, you've got to do something about this. Daniel's peaceful. He goes in. He prays to his sovereign God on his knees. Prays three times a day toward Jerusalem. Now, there's nothing here about... Um, this is not like a ritual that's required in the Bible for us to pray three times to Jerusalem. Not like the, like the Muslims pray three times five times to Mecca. There's no prescription in the New Testament that says we've got to go upstairs, open our window, face east, and pray three times a day. That's not a prescribed way of praying, but what it shows us here is that Daniel had scheduled times of prayer. Three times a day he prayed, probably morning, noon, and evening. He had what we would call a quiet time. He had his personal devotional. He set scheduled, specific Focused time to meet with his Lord. Now, obviously, we need to be praying spontaneously, especially when you're driving on I-25 or you're, you know, your kids get their license. You need to be starting to pray, seriously. Pray without ceasing. But I think what Daniel shows us here is that he had a specific, set, focused time of prayer. And we need to have the same thing. We need to have those set times where we meet face-to-face with our Lord in those secret places who knows, this could have been what Daniel was praying. We don't know what Daniel was praying, but this could have been what he was praying in Psalm 55, 16 through 18. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. You know, there was nothing magical about Daniel focusing towards Jerusalem. But I think it was a reminder to him. Sometimes we need to have reminders that keep us focused. I think it was a reminder for Daniel that that's home. That's where the temple is. That, that's the covenant God who's promised that one day we'll return back from captivity and be in the land. And so for him to open the window and pray towards Jerusalem was just a way to remind him of staying focused in prayer. And I think that we need to stay focused on prayer. You know, a lot of you may use prayer journals Prayer cards, index cards, prayer notebooks, devotional materials. I'm for everything that you can use as long as it's theologically solid and it's Christ-centered. But but sometimes you just need some tools to keep yourself focused. So the first thing we see about Daniel's prayer life is he's disciplined. He's focused. But the second thing, and this is really amazing, what's he doing? His prayer life, it starts with giving thanks. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, what would we be as cushy Americans doing? Lord, get me out of this. Lord, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Lord, I don't like these rules. Lord, this is unconstitutional. Let's form a committee to go petition Congress and get this law changed. We would be so demanding our rights, and we'd be so up in arms, and we'd be saying, God, this isn't fair, and God this, and God that, and complaining to God. What does Daniel do? He gives thanks. Instead of pouring all of his time and all of his energy into complaining against God, he recognizes that God is the source of his life Every good and perfect gift comes from God. He notices that God is good. His mercies are new every morning. You see, when we start focusing on being thankful people in our prayer life, it turns the attention off of our wills, our agendas, and it sets us on a course to seeing God's will and God's agendas. And when we start praising God and thanking God for His faithfulness in the past, it gives us the encouragement to know that He's going to answer our prayers in the future. He's going to be faithful. So He's a man of thanksgiving he's not complaining he's not cowering he's not um, fuming he's he's thanking god he's thanking god and thirdly he's asking god he's petitioning god notice what he says there in um verse 11 then these men came by agreement and found daniel making petition and plea before his god he's asking god to move now we don't know what daniel's praying here all we know is these men see him praying. Probably was praying out loud. We don't know what he's praying. We'll find out in chapter 9, a prayer, a recorded prayer of Daniel, so we may get some insight. But what can, what can we make in a safe assumption? We can probably make a safe assumption looking at Daniel's chapter 1 through 5, up to this point, that Daniel's prayers were probably not self-centered, but were Christ-centered. They were probably focused on confessing sin, probably focused on asking God to come in power. They were probably asking for God's will to be done. And so he's pleading with God. He's asking God to move. There's nothing wrong with praying and asking God to do something. That's what prayer is. We just need to realize we can't command God to do anything. We ask God as our Heavenly Father to act. Now here's something we see very interesting about God's sovereignty here. Because we know from the rest of the story that God closed the mouths of the lions, right? But here's a question you've got to be asking. Why couldn't God just have put a force field around Daniel's house so those people didn't see him praying? Why did God allow him to get caught? Isn't God sovereign enough to protect Daniel for those 30 days? And maybe, you know, if he went up there and he prayed and opened his his window, that God would just somehow magically shield the eyes from those those other people from seeing Daniel? How come God in his sovereignty didn't protect Daniel? How come he allowed Daniel to, quote-unquote, get caught? You see, God may not deliver us from trials, but God will deliver us through trials. One commentator said it this way, God is not committed to our comfort. Ooh, stop for a moment. That goes against everything you hear in America, right? What do you mean God's not committed to our comfort? What are you talking about, Willis? So you read this commentator. God is not committed to our comfort. He's not committed to making our path through life smooth. He is committed to sanctifying us and demonstrating His own glory through us. And very often, that commitment means He will subject our earthen vessels to pressures that would certainly shatter us were His grace not sufficient for us. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians twelve nine? Paul said this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Daniel's caught. He's caught in the act of praying. And notice what these instigators, these conspirators say about Daniel. They really defame his character. Look at verse 13. Notice what they say about Daniel. Who is Daniel, by the way? He's one of the presidents, right? One of the prime ministers. He's one of the top three guys. What do they say? Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Oh, Daniel's no longer a president. He's no longer a top official. He's a slave. He's one of those exiles. He's not one of us. He's an outsider. He's different. They start to malign his character. He pays no attention to you, king. And really, the king's in a catch 22 because the king likes Daniel. The king was hoping this wouldn't happen. And so the king is kind of cowardly because here's what happens if the king revokes the, the edict, then it shows he's a weak leader and he's going to have to save face. And so instead of investigating all the facts, instead of standing up for truth and justice, instead of looking at the situation and saying, Daniel's done nothing wrong, instead of taking a thorough investigation, he takes the cowardly, easy way out and says, okay, I'm going to save face. I really like Daniel, but my position is more important. Let's throw him into the den of lions. Now let's look at the third major issue this morning. Daniel's a man of integrity. Daniel's a man of prayer. Thirdly, let's just look at the rescue this is the story. This is the, the, the lion's den story. Daniel six seventeen through 28. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords. It's kind of like a, a, a wax clay. You put, your, you put your ring on there to show that it's the king's doing it. It's, a, it's an authoritative sealing of this, of this den. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Probably not expecting any voice to emerge. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that on my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end, He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Here's a piercing irony that's going on in the story. The king can't sleep, can he? He's up at night. He can't sleep. He's got everything this world has to offer. He's got the women. He's got the money. He's got the power. He's got the resources. He's up. He's in turmoil. He can't sleep. He's got everything in his disposal. And yet, Daniel, on the other hand, is what? He's alone. He's got nothing. But he sleeps peacefully in a tomb, if you will, hanging out with some purring lions. And this angel that comes... And see, here's the battle between the two kingdoms. The power of life and death is not in the hand of the king. The power of life and death is in the hand of the true king, God. And how many times here does, does Darius call Daniel's God the living God? You serve the living God. Now we have to ask a question. Haven't we seen this before with, with um, Belshazzar and with Nebuchadnezzar? Is Darius like converted? Is he a believer? Is he saved? Or is this just his way like all these other kings of being? Wow, that's a cool thing. Let's make a proclamation that Daniel's God is cool. We really don't know. He may have just been wowed by the fact that Daniel was saved. Whose credit? He acknowledges that God's a living God. His dominion is forever. In the end, Daniel's rescued. Remember of our study of Hebrews 11 last fall? By faith, by faith, by faith, all these people did these things. What does Hebrews 11 33 say who through faith stopped the mouth of lions i want you to notice the last verse of this chapter verse 28 so this daniel prospered during the reign of darius and the reign of cyrus the persian who's the last one standing daniel he's been through king after king after king He's not compromised after kingdom, after kingdom. This is a beautiful truth of the perseverance of the state saints. He remains true to the end. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Kings come on the horizon, kings fall off the horizon. Nations are shaken, nations tossle and turn, but Daniel stays steady to his God to the very end. And I think we need to take some, some notice of this because we live in an uncertain world. Just turn on Fox News or CNN or any any station and look at what our world is becoming. And it can be a lot of fear out there. What's our nation going to look like? What's going to happen to our country? What's going to happen to everything we believe in? In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Now, I'm not saying don't be patriotic, don't be concerned about our government, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because God's kingdom is the one that's going to endure to the end. And wherever God has placed us, we are called to be obedient. And look at Daniel. He outlived all these kingdoms, he's the last one standing. But here's a startling thing about this story Daniel saved because he was innocent. But those people that blamed him, those co-conspirators that came, what happened to them? They're thrown into the den of the lions. Not just them, but who else? Their wives and children. That's pretty graphic. That's pretty um, cruel and unusual punishment. That's the way the Persian government worked. Now we can look at this and say, you know what? This is a great little story. God saved Daniel. Does this mean Because God saved Daniel, God is always going to save me from harm. Can you make that connection? Can you make that jump? Can you say from experience there's never going to ever be martyrs? There's never going to be anybody that's ever killed for their faith. You can't say that based upon the Bible, based upon experience, based upon things going around the world. And so we can't just look at this and say, God's always going to protect his people. Now, God will get you through it, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be no such thing as martyrs. But see, here's a greater thing going on in the story. We may look at this and say, that's a great story. Daniel in lion's den. Cool, I like the lion thing. What's the greater picture going on here? There are, there's so much symbolism, so much imagery in this story that relates to the New Testament that you, 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 can, you really can't miss it. This is a picture of Judgment Day. Now let me ask you a question. Why was Daniel saved? Look at the text. Why was Daniel saved? Verse 22 answers it. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because. What does because mean? Here's the reason. I was found blameless. Daniel was innocent. Daniel was blameless. There was nothing that God could charge against Daniel. Daniel was found innocent. So here's the $10 million question for us. How are you found blameless and innocent before God? Is there something moral within us that makes God's ears perk up and say, man, I'm going to look at that. That person's got some great morality. Is it by doing all these good deeds that somehow God will be impressed with us? Is it somehow being perfect? Is it having ultimate integrity like Daniel? Is there something within us that makes us innocent before god and hopefully by now you know the answer to that is no there's nothing within us that makes us innocent before god we are saved by grace alone but so how do you get declared innocent if if you can't do it yourself if you can't cause yourself to be blameless if you can't make yourself acceptable before god how in the world do you get saved how in the world does this happen to you Because, see, here's the penalty. Here's the two choices. You either get saved or you get thrown into the den. This is a picture of judgment. The lion's den is a picture of judgment, eternal judgment, judgment day, being thrown into a place that's a whole lot worse than a den of lions. We're talking about eternal conscious torment in a place called hell. You see the picture? Those that were not innocent were thrown and destroyed. On the final day of judgment, those who are not innocent are thrown and destroyed. This all comes back to Jesus. Let's look at some parallels here for just a moment. Daniel, although innocent, was what? He was maliciously and falsely accused. You think about Jesus? Was he maliciously and falsely accused? Although he was innocent? He was more than innocent. He was perfect. Matthew 26, 59 through 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Jesus was falsely accused. Darius ordered that the seal of the tomb be not moved so Daniel could not escape the death. Does it sound similar to Pilate. Pilate ordered the tomb of Jesus to be sealed. Matthew 27, 64 through 66. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Jesus was falsely accused. Jesus was placed into a tomb. What happened to Daniel? Was he torn limb from limb? Were any bones in his body broken? No. Thank you. You can answer. What happened to Jesus when he was on the cross? Not one of his bones was broken. But see, here's where the stories diverge. Here's where the stories don't connect. Daniel was saved from the lions, Jesus was not. Jesus died alone. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus took upon all of our sin and shame. Jesus took upon the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus was being punished alone, forsaken, taking upon our sin on that cross. God spared Daniel. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so here's the other interesting thing. Daniel experienced somewhat of a resurrection, didn't he? What happened? He came out of that tomb, alive. Jesus, in more glorious fashion, did what? He came out of that tomb, alive, after suffering a physical, torturous death on the cross. And Jesus is alive today. He is the ultimate ruler. He's the final judge. And there will be a day of judgment. So those that are not guilty, those that are blameless, those that are innocent will be able to go to heaven to be with Jesus forever, to enjoy eternal life with him forever and ever. But those that don't, those that die in their sins, those that die guilty, will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire, just like those others were thrown into the lion's den. So, how do you become blameless? What do you got to do? What's the only thing you can do to get yourself in a right standing? I want you to look at something very key in verse 23. It's the same for us as it was for Daniel. The king was exceedingly glad and commended that David be taken up out of the den. So Daniel, Daniel was taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because what? He trusted. The only way you're made innocent is by trusting. That's the only thing you can do is trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you. I've given this illustration so many, so many times, and I'm going to give it again, because I think it, it gives so much insight. Here's how you're counted blameless. Here's how you're counted innocent. Here's your life. Here's Christ's life. Your life is like a bank account. Christ's life is like a bank account. In your life, in your bank account of a life, you have a negative gazillion dollar balance, okay? That's a made-up word, but let's just say you have a lot of sin. And even if you try to make deposits into that, are you ever going to get out of debt? You are in major, major debt. You can't do anything to somehow fix that debt problem. So something has to happen. When you trust in Christ Christ, For salvation, guess what happens? A great exchange happens. He takes all of your sins out of your account and they're transferred or they're credited to Christ's account. So when Christ died on that cross, he took your sins from your account and placed them in his account. So your account now has no longer a negative balance. You're at zero. You're at zero, which is a good thing. But zero is zero. Who wants to have zero money? Don't you want to have a positive balance? You cannot create a positive balance. In and of yourself, there's no way that you can add a positive balance to your account because of your sin. Something has to happen. So not only are your sins credited to Christ, but something else happens that's amazing. Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to you. So that when God the Father looks down upon your life because you've trusted in Christ, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees his son. He can look down and say, Sean Cole is blameless. Not because Sean Cole's all that. Not because Sean Cole worked for it. Not because Sean Cole was good enough for it, but simply because Sean Cole has trusted in Christ and Christ covers me. That's how you're made right. So here's the ultimate question this morning. What does your account balance look like? On the ledger sheet, In your debit account, what does your account look like? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself and creating that huge negative balance? Are you trusting in the only one, Jesus Christ, who can save you from the wrath of God so that on the day of judgment you will not be thrown into the lake of fire like those that were found guilty were thrown into the lion's den? You will be saved. You will be rescued. You will be freed from your sins by trusting in christ alone you may say "Well, what does it mean to trust a lot of you may say you know what i have a trust issue i find it hard to trust people i can't trust people very well why would i want to trust someone i can't see why would i want to trust jesus i can't see him (laughs) that's why it's called faith it's not something i can give you it's not something i can give you a pill and say hey take this pill and get faith It's something supernatural where God has to come and open your eyes to the truth and you give your entire self to Jesus. You don't hold anything back from Jesus. You give him your entire life. You trust him. You bow the knee to him. You surrender to him. You give him everything. And the Bible says once you do that, once you fully trusted him for salvation, then your account balance goes to positive and all the negative sins taken out. Would you today make that great exchange? by trusting in Christ alone for salvation. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. This can apply to your prayer life. This can apply to just your regular life, your spiritual life, the ultimate question is who are you trusting in? Where's, where, where's your trust this morning? Is your trust in yourself and your accomplishments? Are you, are you trusting in what you can do? Or are you trusting in only what Christ can do? Are you a person of integrity like Daniel? Are you a person of prayer like Daniel? Can you say you've been saved by grace like Daniel? The message is not be a better Daniel. The message is trust in the Christ who saved Daniel because he's the only one that can save you. As we sang earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I want you just to spend a few moments this morning in prayer. Just answer that question, who am I trusting? Where's my trust? Stand and sing this morning. I just want us to sit here in prayer because so many times at the end of a service we can get so focused on trying to get out of here and singing the words and standing and moving that it may be just appropriate right now in the quietness of this moment just to stay still before God. And think about the words to the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. This is your opportunity to turn your eyes on Jesus your opportunity to trust in him take advantage of this time I just want to pray a prayer over the congregation at this moment. There may be many in this room that are struggling with issues of trust. Many are not placing their faith in Christ alone. I just pray that today you would give many in this room, all of us in this room, the grace to trust, to trust you alone. maybe some for the very first time in this room that have never trusted Christ before, never bowed their knee to you, Jesus, and said, I give up. May we all be those that turn our eyes upon Jesus. We do this for your glory and for your grace this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name I pray.